0: Yes, here we go. And excited to be back with you. If I haven't introduced myself, I'm Morgan, the lead pastor here at Mosaic. Sorry, I forgot that earlier, but welcome to week two of Better Than I Began. We're taking a look at how the gospel in Romans 8 can change everything. We're taking it one section at a time. And our reading today is from verses 12 through 23 and 26 through 27. Follow along. Here we go. It's on the screen. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God Are the children of God. The spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And now if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share And brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. And not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And that's the reading of God's word. All his people said, come on, amen, yeah. Frederick Nietzsche, your, famous, uh, your favorite famous atheist in mine said this, quote, I might believe in the Redeemer if his followers looked more redeemed. Now, I know he's snarky. I know he's cynical. And I'm not even sure he might if we did, if you know what I mean. But he's got a point. He's got a point. So how can we do that? It's my question today. How can we look to use his word more, redeemed, more changed, and different, and better, and by the way, if you've come in here today and you've said that there is nothing at all in your life that needs to be redeemed or adjusted or made better, if you're a person that would say, I'm ship shape, as is, and let me say two things to you today as we get going, number one, don't ask the person next to you what they actually think, and number two, you've come to the wrong place. Because the church is where the people of God, gathered by the gospel of Jesus, assemble. Catch that. The churches were the people of God gathered by the gospel of Jesus, assemble. And the gospel tells us that we are actually desperately in need of change, in need of saving. That's why God sent Jesus to us, because we could not get to him. So, church is not the place to go if you think I'm fine as is. But I discovered this week there is actually a place you could go if you think that you're fine as is. You could go to New Jersey. New Jersey, yes, New Jersey, where you will meet the real housewives of New Jersey. One of whom, Margaret Josephs, known as the realest housewife, this week was asked about any advice she would give to others to help them live their best lives. And she was interviewed. I watched it, actually, don't ask why. And she said this, that's what she said. Quote is my advice, don't ever change. Don't change a thing about you. You are fine just how you are. Now, I know that shows an easy target, okay, but that's a cultural message we hear a lot, isn't it? Don't ever change, but surely... If a parent or spouse were abusing you, you'd want them to change, wouldn't you? Like, right now, immediately, and surely if your, your friend were abusing drugs, you would want them to change. Right now, immediately, you would not want them to listen to their realest housewife. You'd want them to listen to you. And all of us surely have friends who say stuff to us, who heard us from time to time. Surely we want them to change. Yes, we do. And so if literally everyone else around us somehow has a problem, character, deficiency, or flaw, surely we're not the only ones who don't. So the truth is not we should never change. The truth is we need to change not only on behalf of the ones that we love, but especially if, as our friend Frederick said, we want to look like our Redeemer. Okay. So fortunately, I've got good news for you today, me today, all of us today. If you are a Christian, I want you to hear me. You have the greatest change agent in the universe in your life. You do. And somehow, though, it sounds incredibly mystical. We'll look at it. The Bible insists that that change agent, the Holy Spirit, lives inside you. And that is what Romans 8 is all about. It's all about a life that's been changed by the third person of the one true God whom Christians call the Holy Spirit. Which means this today. Here's what we're going to look at. That Romans 8 shows us a better way to change. Romans 8 shows us a better way to change. How does that happen? How does the Holy Spirit help us change We're going to see today the Holy Spirit helps us break through three categories of things in our lives. Number one, through our bad habits, (laughs) our habits, our hang-ups, and finally, our hurts. Helps us break through our habits, hang-ups, and hurts. So if you're here and you're saying, Morgan, I'm stuck somehow in life, okay, great. Romans 8 is for you. Or if you're here and you're just asking for a friend, (laughs) that's cool too. Romans eight for you as well. How does the Holy Spirit help us change? Number one, let's get going. Number one, the Holy Spirit, we're going to see, I hope, breaks us out of our bad habits. Breaks us out of our bad habits. According to Paul here, Romans 8, let's get going, set it up. You and I have a problem. (laughs) And here it is, verse 13, he says, For if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you'll live. So our problem is this, is that we're all tempted to, we all struggle with, we wrestle with this thing called the flesh. Okay, the flesh. We saw last week that living in the flesh is the normal spiritual state, how you come out of the box state of humanity. Your flesh is not your physical skin and bones. Paul contrasts your flesh with your body, even in this one verse. But your flesh is your spiritual infrastructure your spiritual bones and we saw last week that Paul says what's inside those old bones and old boards in your house is rotting and he goes so far back in verse 7 to put it like this he says your flesh isn't just at war with God it's worse your flesh is war itself it's not just hostile towards God he says no your flesh is hostility itself, which means when your flesh talks, it's gonna sound a lot like this I'ma do me. <laughs> YOLO. That's just how I roll. It's just me being me. And Paul says what comes naturally out of that flesh, out of, through your body, Paul calls your misdeeds. That's our English word here. But it's the Greek word praxis. Praxis means force of habit or mode of acting. The stuff you do over and over. Praxis is the way you procrastinate. Praxis is the way you shade the truth. Praxis is the way you run over people. Praxis is the tendency you have to run your mouth. Praxis is looking at the stuff you know you shouldn't be looking at. It's your misdeeds. It's your bad habits. Praxis is what threatens to sabotage your life. How do you deal with them? Well, someone who looked at this long and deep was actually the great African thinker, Augustine, St. Augustine. And Augustine was, of course, a genius, if you know his story. By the age of 30, he had received the most prestigious teaching position in all of the Roman Empire. and He had come initially from this philosophical background and said that humans, human beings, are totally free Morally positive people who can exercise choice at any moment and change when they want. He had a very optimistic view of human nature. But then Augustine ran into a problem. Augustine ran into himself. He ran into his own bad habits and he called this problem the force of habit. What he called it? As in there's this underlying force. There's this behind the scenes power behind bad habits and he found he couldn't overcome it. And he put it like this. He said, quote, it is strange how the soul is caught in a sort of habit it cannot break. And then he gives this one example, sort of for those of you who love Jesus, but you cuss a little if you've seen that t-shirt. Okay. <laughs> he gives us one example. He says, we see around us men who don't want to swear But because their tongue has picked up the habit, words escape from their lips, which they are unable to control. The force of habit goes on its own way. It takes on a life of its own. The self has no power to break out. And even after his conversion, he still saw that he struggled with certain habits. And so he wrote this. He said, my heavy burden of distress continued to drag me back. I am sucked back into my habits and I find myself held fast. I weep greatly, but I am firmly held. Concluded like this. Load of habit is a force to be reckoned with. And he asked, well, why is this? Why is it such a struggle? And he concluded like this. He said, ultimately, the reason habits have power over us is because they offer us a delight that our memories misremember. They offer us a delight that our memories misremember. He says, we're like addicts who lie to ourselves. We are like people who are misremembering that the alcohol is killing us. What did he do? Well, Augustine famously, he went back and he looked, of course, right here. Romans 8, the writings of Paul, and he discovered that what he needed most of all to break free was the person of the Holy Spirit who stirred something up within us. What was it? To put it in a nutshell, summarize his thought, he said, We need a death by delight. A death by the light. What's that? Let me give you an example. A few years uh, after I became a Christian, I, I wasn't married. I was single at the time. and I remember going to the mall at Christmas. You all remember going to malls? That was like. It's so had a nice mall with nice stores. Uh, there was this ice rink where couples are skating together and couples are holding hands. and Couples are going shopping and couples are drinking hot lattes together. Sound familiar? All right, and they look so happy like what every commercial around Valentine's Day tells you, right? And here I was as a Christian and I felt so lonely and my pre-Christian trajectory was just to date girl after girl after girl, effectively using them in the process, dragging them down in my bad habit. But here I was at Christmas, I'm getting emotionally dragged back down into this and attempted to call up her or her or her just to get something started. I felt the force of habit rise up. Oh, but all of a sudden, By God's grace, as I'm walking through the mall, something else rose up on the inside of me. It was another voice saying, push back, push back. And so I began to push back and I began to pray, oh God, I love you more than anything else. I don't want to be married. I just want you. Now that was a total lie at first. But I kept going. God, I just want you. You're more beautiful than anything else in my life. You love me more than anyone could. You have saved me and rescued me. I owe you everything and all I want is you. And as I began to pray this, I I, I feel this, I kid you not, something changed on the inside of me. I felt this like warmth rising up on the inside of my chest and spilling over and overwhelming the other feeling. And I looked at those other couples and I felt genuine happiness for them and contentment for me. What happened? In that moment, it was death by delight, right? Death by delight. And of course, being married is great, it's wonderful, totally recommended. We're having a marriage event this weekend. But I wasn't dealing, hear me, with the desire to be married, which is right and righteous. I was dealing with a misremembered memory, a false delight that said, I'm only loved if I have another person in my life to tell me that. See, that's the habit. There was a force behind it. And so I needed, you need a greater force. What can help us put to death? Whatever habit is. Other things for sure. People, pastors, counselors. Yes, but it begins right here. Begins right here. Having a greater delight. The daily delight that comes from adoring and worshiping a greater beauty. We have the greatest change agent in the universe on the inside of us. Have you asked for his help? Have you asked for his help? Ask for help to delight in God. That's number one. Number two, Holy Spirit not only helps us break free of our bad habits, but it frees us from our hang-ups. Our hang-ups. So there's one specific hang-up, one specific place we get stuck that Paul names and says we're all in, and offers a way out. Here it is, verse 15, he names it. He says, the spirit you received, is what we sang about today, does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. So he says the human condition we all find ourselves in is to find us stuck between, hung up between, going back and forth between these two emotional poles, and he names them. Well, on one hand, there's the pole of fear, on the other hand, there's the pull of adoption to sonship. Real quick about that, the Greco-Roman practice. He's it a cultural uh, touchstone here. Adoption to sonship was the choosing of an heir outside the family, if a child did not have its own biological child, to receive the family inheritance, give full rights that were not Previously present, it was the upgrading to a full and respected status. A sonship was a status. It was the highest status in a family. And by the way, thankfully, you'd be happy to know, this isn't sexist at all. This is Paul's way of trying to undo that. As Paul is saying, the highest status in the family of God. Previously, it's reserved for only males. Sorry, everybody. It's for everyone. Males and females in the family of God. It's an expression of beautiful equality. Equality. So we long, he's saying, for this to happen, but we're stuck between these two poles, fear, adoption of sons, fear and love, fear and love. And we feel this, we felt this, haven't we, over the last two years. And especially for those of us who call ourselves Christians, we would say, oh yeah, I'm a child of God. We sing that song, but our hearts keep getting dragged back toward that fear. Why? Why do we get stuck in a moment we can't get out of? why the 2008 movie it's called a wrestler it's a dark one wouldn't necessarily recommend it let's just say it came out before common sense media was a thing all right but it's about this washed up former professional wrestler not about the fake olympic kind where they train and give medals for anyway just kidding about that all right kidding 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 Uh, Anyway, the character's name is Randy the Ram Robinson, and in the story, he's a famous wrestler back in the 1980s, but he's coming to grips in the present day of uh, aging, being washed up, and he drives around in his Dodge Ram van, get it? He's got a little action figure of himself on the dash, and he begins, though, to realize his whole life has been a sham. Uh, he's, He's fought these fake battles with a fake name, this fake hair the fake tan, taking steroids to build fake muscles, and it's all been a fake, and he realizes he sacrificed everything to try to be famous, but it's failed him, and he sacrificed even his relationship with his own daughter, whom he's abandoned, and so he quits wrestling. He goes to work at this deli counter, slicing meat. He tries to reconnect with his daughter, and just when you think he's going to turn his life around, he goes to a bar, He gets pulled back into his old life, sex and drugs. He oversleeps. He misses this date with his daughter. and He loses her forever, and he tries to apologize unsuccessfully. And he says this, "'I'm just an old, broken-down piece of meat. "'I'm alone, and I deserve to be alone.'" And so out of this, he goes back to his life in the ring and he agrees to do one more match to try to put him on top again, restore his fame. And when he comes out in the movie in all his glory, we realize it's a far cry from where he once was. It's like this tiny fraction, a tiny a dirty venue with a fraction of the crowd. Uh, but he's, he's old, he can't hardly hear anymore. He's having chest pains because of the stress and the steroids, but he can't stop wrestling. And in the end, he rejects the woman that he loves and he embraces the cry of the crowd, he was just coming back to the one place he could be assured of his worth. And the last moment of the life, of his life in the film sees him leap to his death to please the crowd. Now, it's dark, yeah, but we all, according to Paul, we all have this same struggle, the struggle over which cry to listen to, the cry of true love or the cry of the crowd. Let me ask you, has anyone has said something to you like it just set you off? Like you just got stuck. You got hung up on it. You couldn't get past it. You just replay it, rehash it over and over again, again. Stuck in that moment and you can't get out of it. You keep coming back to the same old ring, you know, same old fears. Let me ask you this I'm gonna meddle for a minute. Parents, I'm talking to you, are you driven by the fear you're only a someone if your child wins? Hmm? So maybe you push him or her, you scream at him or her, or even worse, maybe for the formative years of your child's life. You have them play in tournaments or then recitals every single weekend instead of developing their faith, their connection with God's people. They'll need to sustain them for a lifetime. What's the message you give when you do that? Like church, yeah, it's good. Faith community is good. But sports and dance are essential. Why? Because we're afraid if they don't do it, they won't be a success. But let me ask you, a success at what? At what? As parents, sometimes even we want the cry of the crowd. Are you only a someone if you get the promotion or the title or whatever? See, the point is somehow, at some point, everyone can go back towards that pole of fear. Not the Fear of the dark, but the fear that we're not loved without the cry of the crowd. But I want to tell you, this is the good news. There's a better cry we can have, not the cry of the crowd, but the cry of the Holy Spirit, which rises up from the inside of us and does this, says this. Paul writes, The Spirit you received as a Christian brought about your adoption to sonship. You're God's child, and by Him we cry, Abba, Father. He's saying we can leave our hang-ups, our stuck places when we move towards, when we embrace, when we listen to dial up the cry of the Spirit, which causes us to cry that one word, Abba, Dad, Father, my source. Martin Luther looked at what it meant to cry this word, a little commentary about it. He said this. He said this word, Abba, it's but a little word, and yet it means comprehendeth, he says, all things. He prayed this. God, although I be oppressed with anguish and terror on every side and seem to be forsaken and utterly cast away from thy presence, yet I am thy child, and thou art my father for Christ's sake. I am beloved because of thee, beloved. Wherefore, this little word, father, passeth all the eloquence of the most eloquent rhetoricians in the world. He said, Abba, is literally the best thing you can say or pray. When you're feeling alone, you're hung up in between that thing. You can't get past what should have been. You just cry out, oh God, Daddy, Father, I need you. I need your affection and your nearness right now. And I want to tell you, it's the work of the Holy Spirit. He's glad to do this to free us from our stuck place. So don't push that cry down. Let it come up. We have the greatest change agent in the universe inside us. Have you asked the Holy Spirit for his help to cry this? What have we seen so far? Number one, our habits, bad habits are one thing. Our misdeeds can cripple us. Number two, our hangups can be worse. They keep us stuck in like a spin cycle, but there's something deeper, more challenging here. We need help with the Holy Spirit's in our lives for number three, the Holy Spirit heals us of our hurts. Not just habits or hang-ups, but our hurts. And here's why I think, I think Paul thinks our hurts are even worse. Here's why. It's because, we're gonna look at it, our suffering can turn us dark. When the world around us goes dark, and for many of us, it's dark right now, it changes us, can change us for the worse. And yet the promise of Romans 8 right here is that we can be not worse for the wear. But better than we began. How? Look at verse 18. He says, I consider that our present sufferings, because you got more than one, how many of you know? are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. So Paul says, I suffer, you suffer, we suffer. He includes himself here. Paul knows what it's like to suffer. Go read his story. We suffer, he says, in this present moment, like right now. And then he goes on, verse 22. We know that not only us, not only we have suffered, but the whole creation is suffering. Groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to right now. What's he getting at with all this stuff about pain, childbirth, groans, kids? Well, all right, when Carrie and I were pregnant with our first child, and by the way, I mean she, (laughs) not I, was pregnant. I wasn't pregnant at all. I did actually none of the pregnant part. You may be surprised to know this. Wasn't expecting in the least. Just want to confirm that. Just want to give credit where credit's due. (laughs) But when her water broke, and we went to the hospital for our first delivery, and by that I mean her first delivery, yes. Super challenging. She was in labor for hours, hours and hours and hours, hours hours of pushing. And at some point, it required some additional intervention to get our, our child out, our son out. He almost died, had to be revived. It was crazy, but by, by God's grace, and an amazing medical team, it all turned out okay. But for hours, mom labored. For hours, mom was in pain. And Paul says, that's us. We're in pain because we wait for the rebirth of the universe. That's what we're hoping for. Something the prophets saw, foresaw in the Hebrew scriptures, right? Uh, In the New Testament's called it the new heavens and the new earth, where the earth doesn't just like burn up and the sun doesn't burn out. That's not the Christian vision of the future. No, we're looking forward to the day when everything is renewed and transformed by the power of the resurrection and the person of Jesus. So Paul says we look forward to that, But we suffer now. It's like we're all, in a way, in labor. What can help heal the pain? Paul says this. It's remarkable. Only the Christian faith makes this claim. Paul says what can heal us is the groan itself. Is the groan itself. And not just our groan. The groan of the Holy Spirit. Verse 26, in the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. It's singular. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. People ask, is this scripture about praying in tongues? Could be, might be. Think there are better ones for that. Is this about our prayer life over here? Could be, might be. But look at the context. It's all in the context of suffering, groaning. Paul says, we've got a weakness, and here it is. We don't know what to pray for when we suffer. We can't even find words when we suffer to express the pain, express the hurt, express the loss. We don't even know, many of us, how to put into words. I don't, What we feel like we've lost over the last two years. Opportunities vanished. Things taken from our kids and culture. We are speechless in the face of our suffering. But Paul says at that moment, oh, the Holy Spirit, like a mom in labor, expresses a groan through us, something so guttural and basic and primal and in touch with human pain that the groan itself can heal us. The groan itself can give birth to something new in your life. Why? Why would he make this claim? That the groan of the Spirit gives birth to new life. Well, of course, on one hand, the idea of groaning, it's all throughout the Christian scriptures. It's inherent. The people of Israel groaned and slavery in Egypt, right? Job groaned in his personal suffering. The prophets groaned as they watched God's people struggle in spiritual slavery. Oh, but more than anything else, Paul can make this claim because of the groan of God, the groan of God, because Jesus Christ on the cross in his moment of suffering did not cry out, Abba! Daddy, no, he cried out as he did his whole, unlike his whole life he cried out, my God God, where did you go why have you forsaken me he felt distanced from his Abba and Jesus died in that distance see on the cross God groaned and gave up his life the magician's nephew one of the chronicles of Narnia the main character's name is Diggory Kirk and C.S. Lewis, the author uh, is his version, his way of basically writing himself into the story and Diggory Kirk and the magician's nephew is a young man. He comes into the land of Narnia. He's seeking a cure for his mother's illness. She's slowly dying, and then Diggory Kirk meets the Christ figure, Aslan the Lion, and he asks him this. He said, But please, please, won't you, can't you give me something that will cure mother? But up until then, he'd been looking at the lion's great front feet and the huge claws that were on them. But now in his despair, he looked up at its face. What he saw surprised him as much as anything in his whole life. For the tawny face was bent down near his own, and wonder of wonders, great shining tears stood in the lion's eyes. They were such big, bright tears compared with Diggory's own that for a moment he felt as though the lion must be sorrier about his mother than he was himself. See, Lewis, he's showing you something he himself found because his own mother died of cancer in his childhood. See, through the character of Diggory Kirk, he's showing you he found a way for his hurt to be healed. It was by looking at the groanings of God, the suffering of a Savior, like the tears of heaven, because unlike every other faith, no, the God of the Bible, the Christian faith says that God doesn't just receive our groans, hears our groans on the cross. It said that God God himself made the ultimate groan. He knows what it's like therefore to, to suffer in this present moment, though he did nothing to deserve, it, that we took upon himself the penalty for all the suffering we truly deserve. Oh, but because of that, and now because of the Holy Spirit, the third person of God has felt that, was in touch with the gap and the distance created by the pain within the Trinity. Now he lives in our hearts as children of God. And when we groan, and allow him to express himself through us, there can be a redemptive element and aspect to it. Your groaning can give birth to new life because Jesus' groan gave birth to you and me a new life and the Holy Spirit. And this is a supernatural claim for sure. Praise up from the inside of you. You allow him, open your heart and transforms the despair in your groan to a mother's cry. Joy. Would you say today, even Holy Spirit, would you express your groan through me? Wordless groan, would you come? I don't know what to do when I suffer. I feel this, don't even know what to say. Would you express yourself through me? Listen, this will do this, it makes us better than we began. Friends, we have the greatest change agent in the universe living on the inside of us. Let's go to him in our habits, find a greater delight. Go to him in our hang-ups and express a better cry. And go to him with our hurts and release a greater groan. Hope you can say amen to this. Let me take a moment and pray for us. I hope that we even now, some of us would begin to do that and cry that. God, we come to you in Jesus' name and we thank you here. Lord, how in touch you are with the human condition. How near you are and word of human suffering, that you tasted it all the way down to the bitter end. The betrayal of friends, the lost privilege, The denial of rights, refusal of justice. And you died in the middle of all that. Yet you resurrected. And we believe your suffering and your resurrection, put them together. When we release these, Lord, it's transformative. Holy Spirit, would you help us to cry out, Abba? Would you help us to groan this week? Express that longing for a better world, longing for a better world, longing for a new life and a better hope and a better future. or not just to stuff it down, not just to vent it on others or on social media, but to express it to you. Yes. To groan in a way that can bring forth a cry of joy. Pray these things today for us in Jesus' name. Amen, amen. Thanks for listening. For more info about how to get and stay connected to Mosaic Church, please visit us online at www.mosaicchurchaustin.com or download our app from your app store.